the campaign against marijuana planting, was originally organized as an experimental program in the fall of 1983. And it happened not far from where I was living. I heard the helicopters all day that day. I thought they were looking for a lost hunter because I did not conceive of that being an attack against marijuana cultivation. But that attack in 19, in the fall of 1983, it was two days in which it was an onslaught where four days a week, there were helicopters in the sky uh, going over Pacific area, surveilling, dropping down people with uh, automatic weapons, uh, blackened faces, mostly drug enforcement agents from the urban areas who were looking for a fight. And they ravaged this place for 15 years. So this community did something which is novel and unique. The only thing that I can liken this to is the evolution of the Black Panthers, where a group of community people arose to defend their community. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of it. doesn't matter how badly you got beaten Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go with your <laughs> I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. My name is Douglas Furr. The first thing that comes to mind is that I'm a gadfly. That is to say that I have never settled on any particular career path, uh, never really fixed my attention over the long haul on any given body of work. I've been basically a dilettante throughout my life in a good way because I've been able to partake of a lot of different things. I remember when I first saw him in person, he looked like a mountain man. This audio is from a conversation I had with senior scriptwriter Macy Lou. Like he had like this scruffy, scruffy beard, very unkempt, but like some like, you know, like there's like this, like, uh, like the stillness, but like this excitement um, in uh -huh. the way that he approached us. And he's like, here, let, let, you know, come follow me. I'm going to take you to my house, right? That's what we'll do the interview. And so we go down this like winding dirt path and we arrive at this house and he says, this is basically, this is my house. It's, you know, I, I don't need much space. And uh, he, it's actually a drying shack for marijuana. So this was not meant to house anyone. It was meant to house dried up marijuana plants um, and bud. And so um, we begin to sit down for the interview and he's excited and he's very chatty like he, he he and you can hear it in the interview like he's just like ready to tell stories and he has like a story about everything and i remember he was showing us around the place and there was this book uh that he brought out and it was this massive like 20 pound book it was probably like you know three feet and like 500 pages wow. thick um and it was the whole uh history of cannabis and Humboldt and a bunch of other stuff in Humboldt too. But um, a lot of it had to do with cannabis and it had for, for a very long time, like these people were persecuted. These people like were outlaws. They, they, there's a reason they lived in the middle of nowhere so they could grow weed uh, without the government, you know, coming in and yeah. taking it and infringing on their, on their livelihood. 
and that connection, uh, you can see it. It's down to the way he dresses. Yeah, for sure. And down to the way he lives, because you say that he's living in a trying shack, right? So he's literally living in his workspace. It's not even a workspace. It's like his home and work combined into one. It, it symbolizes the the past, you know, it symbolizes a, a, this this life that, he's, that he has lived and continues to live through. Growing Humboldt cannabis, it's not a business for these people. It's a lifestyle, right? And like he is living that lifestyle. When you arrived there, like, did you feel isolated? Oh, or yeah. how did it a lot of them are totally off grid and completely solar. So it's like th these are remote and uh, and they're not connected to like society as we might know it. Like the pace of life in the, in the area that Douglas was living, like what is his what was his pace of life like? I guess slower. It's like an appreciation of uh, nature and the natural beauty. I remember the first time we talked, like he's like, Oh, I just saw a deer run by. Right. Or like, uh, I just saw uh, these two birds outside my window, you know, f uh, 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 zipping by. Like, there's a connection to nature and this, like, appreciation of that. And in that pre appreciation, it's slower. The, the, when, when I say, like, like, you know, cannabis is a lifestyle, it's like, that it it really is it it accompany it, it accompanies everything like you're 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 watching weeds grow uh, <laughs> at the base of it, of it and like by the by nature of watching those things grow it's like it is slower it is it it takes time it takes effort it takes focus it takes patience um, and that's built into how all these people operate. Even when living in the middle of a secluded forest, unrest lurked just around the corner. In the clip prior to my conversation with Macy, Douglas recalls a period when law enforcement officers regularly assaulted marijuana growers across Humboldt County. Despite armed helicopters ravaging the land and the dropping commune membership, Douglas did the seemingly impossible. He united his community and successfully confronted authority, protecting both the land and his commune. This is just one example of Douglas's defiant spirit at work. Just like the evergreen conifer he's named after, Douglas demonstrates tenacity and strength in all seasons of life. From learning to single-handedly build a house, to surviving off barely $1,000 a year, to smuggling new varieties of weed from the Middle East, Douglas fought and prevailed against the system time and time again. But where does this fiery rebellion come from? When did that first interest in weed culture take root? To answer these questions, we need to rewind the clock 60 years back to the height of the Vietnam War. As any young man of draft age during the mid-60s, I was quite concerned about the Vietnam War. Um, and when it really was active. I was in school for most of that time and enjoying the luxury, and it was a luxury, of a student deferment. These men are in the army. Some are draftees, some regulars, and some are going back to Vietnam for the second or third time. Their mood was wistful, reflective, as they talked with us about the war they were heading for and the country they were leaving behind. I had dropped out of University of California, Berkeley for a semester in 1965, which was the year that Johnson upped the war and increased the troop commitment. And I had intended to stay out of school and travel in Europe. I had a ticket 
I no longer had the protection, so the war forced me back into school. I actually graduated in 1967. I got drafted a few days after I finished college. I didn't uh, particularly fancy leaving my folks and girl, you know, but what about you? <laughs> Can't do much about it. Either go over there or go to jail. You for the war? No, against it. What were your thoughts on the war? I was against the war. From the get-go, it seemed to me to be not only misguided, but illegal involvement in what was essentially a civil war that we had no business participating in. The war was building up from the early 60s, and I did not register for the selective service. Selective service is the draft. At the age of 18, I delayed until four months later when I finally decided, well, I'm going to do this. If you could convince your local draft board that what you were doing was in the national interest, then you could get a deferment. But it also built into that whole system was racism, classism, et cetera, because the people who had the advantages of being able to go to school got student deferments. It was a reward to wealth and privilege, and it was not an equitable system at all. I was drafted in December of 69. Got a letter in the mail. Got a letter in the mail. Say, go to war, go to jail. Go to war, go to jail. Got a letter in the mail. Got a letter in the mail. In the early morning rain. In the early morning rain. You get a notice in the mail that says you are to report uh, for induction at the Oakland Induction Center at this particular time and place, or did, and, and that that's it. What was your response to reading that? It wasn't a surprise when I got the draft notice, and I was prepared to refuse induction. I was a draft counselor at the time, counseling other young men as to what their options were in facing the draft. I knew selective service law better than my draft board did by that time. And I need to point out that at that point, in early 1970, there was a huge movement called draft resistance, and it was working. Draft resistance was saying no in one way or another. And at that point, because the resistance movement was being successful, they weren't immediately arresting you. They were sending us to an older FBI agent who was kind of farmed out to the induction center. But basically his job was to assess whether we were who we said we were and to get the facts of our case. And then we got discharged. Because I knew what my history with Selective Service was, I knew where I had lodged appeals, where my draft board had made procedural errors, because as I said, I was very, very familiar with Selective Service law, that I was able to feel fairly well assured that I was not going to suffer any serious consequences because they were going to go after people who had clear through lines that they could prosecute. So basically, you do get drafted, but nothing happens to you. Basically, that's the, the bottom line is nothing happened. Although when I built my first house in Southern Humboldt, I put in a back door. <laughs> Just in case. Under the selective service system, almost all male U.S. citizens and male immigrants 18 through 25 were required to register for the military. As military drafts peak in 1969, so did resistance to war ideology. Disenchanted with the materialistic repression of the middle class and exasperated with the government's violent agenda, a subculture centered around communal living, open love, and the recreational use of drugs blossomed. And that became what we know today as the hippie movement. Douglas was one of the resistance fighters who succeeded in standing up to the system, but he was lucky. 
His class and education equipped him with the resources to defend himself against the selective service and avoid going to court. However, few were as fortunate as Douglas. In 1966, the U.S. had 400,000 troops stationed in Vietnam. And despite mounting anti-war sentiments, that number rose to 549,000 just three years later. As you can probably tell, uncertainty and rebellion are not abnormal in Douglas' story. They're the norm. His convictions would not only lead him to clash with the government, but in time also lead him to found his own commune. I moved to Southern Humboldt in the spring of 1970. Myself and most of the people who moved to Southern Humboldt in those early years had no intention of growing. They just wanted to live off the land. Yes, it was not within our imaginations of what we thought we were going to do here. So like everyone else, I became an accidental grower um, and with increasing intentionality as the years <laughs> went by when it became clear that this was a way that we could survive and prosper living a lifestyle that we had chosen without any clue as to how we were going to sustain it. When I moved to Humboldt, I was in conversation with a group of people who I'd grown up with, that I went to high school with, uh, but people that I had a longstanding relationship, and we wanted to move to the country. We had no idea that the Back to the Land movement was a movement. We thought that this was our idea. It was only in the spring of 69, when the Whole Earth Catalog, the first of the Whole Earth Catalogs fell in my hands, that I realized we were not alone, that this was a zeitgeist. And I also realized we chose Humboldt County because Monterey County, where we grew up, was just simply too expensive. And Humboldt County at that point was experiencing the tail end of the logging boom, and there was a lot of cheap land for sale, most of it pretty battered by bad logging practices, but cheap. And so we moved here because it was similar enough to Monterey County in terms of the landscape and the special array of, of trees, et cetera, with some certain variations. But that's where I discovered the whole catalog. That's where I discovered that Bob McKee was selling land in Southern Humboldt and other people as well to hippies uh, looking for a way out. And I suddenly realized that we were part, our little group was part of a much, much larger movement. Why do you think that movement was going on at the time? Well, I think it was a, a reaction to, to many things. I mean, the 60s were, we're talking about this is the end of the 60s. The 60s were a wonderful chaos of consciousness opening and, and uh, people experiencing things that had not been really advocated or articulated. Feminism, um, the civil rights movement, obviously, uh, the anti-war movement and different kinds of social configurations, experimentations going on. One of the things that for me personally was by 1970, the war had been going on for seven years. I had done a lot to try to throw my body in the way of it, but had been unsuccessful. And being young at the time, I think I was 22 or 23, I was frustrated and impatient. And what I saw as my choices were picking up a gun and going underground and becoming a revolutionary or dropping out of politics altogether. And I chose the latter. 
leading to establishing yourself here, how do you start to form community in a commune in this area? I got invited by one of the people who had been invited by someone else to come up and share a piece of land, and I took the opportunity. I buckled down and built myself a house over the years with my bare hands um, and no power tools. So you're, you're trying to live off the land. You're kind of doing it successfully if you're building these houses with your old bare hands. But are you having to think about how do I make money? How do you approach building or sustaining that lifestyle? The answer is complex. First of all, I had savings of under $1,000 and I was of the uh, opinion or of the conviction that that would get me to self-sufficiency. And I was a food stamp hippie, as a lot of people were. And a lot of people, a lot of families, those initial years, were on welfare, on AFDC, uh, aid to families with dependent children. I mean, I, I joke about living on air um, because I would say that my income in those first two years was under a couple thousand dollars a year um, and food stamps. And so food stamps allowed me to eat and building materials were salvageable uh, from many sources and the first house i built cost a hundred dollars and the hundred dollars was in cement for the foundation for the foundation blocks and piers and roofing basically um, and maybe nails building the house was extraordinarily powerful for me and empowering for me because it was something that I manifested out of a bunch of piles of stuff. And to realize I had the power and skill to do that, coming from basically a pretty intellectual background, uh, was a phenomenal turn of self-appreciation and, and understanding that, hey, I can do anything. You can build a house by yourself, then you can build a community within that house. Building the house cost me my girlfriend because I was so involved in building the house that I ate, slept, made love to the house, and I lost the girlfriend. There's a parallel between building a house from scraps and living a nonconformist lifestyle in a backwoods country. In both, you're taking pieces of what you know and assembling the life you want. In creating a house, maybe you're using a pile of junk, broken boards, scavenged roof tiles, all materials you're familiar with, but you assemble it in a totally novel way. In a nonconformist lifestyle, you're mashing together people, spiritual modalities, lifestyles that you may have heard of, but haven't experienced in this unique combination. The nonconformist sees what they like and decides, I want all of it. Both cases highlight Douglas's attraction towards the unconventional and his flair for approaching the radically different with an open mind. Living off the land revealed new strengths about himself. Douglas was finally ready to create his own Eden, right here in Humboldt County. You go back to Humboldt with this idea fresh in your mind. How do you actually start the commune and then how does it lead to, to marijuana? There are three people in my house, friends of mine, who are canning applesauce because it's the fall. And I said, let's do the commune right here. <laughs> <laughs> so that was actually the seeds of it. And we figured out we needed 
more space and we started looking for land. We figured we could base at the place that I had built and we got together. Initially, it was just six of us um, and we were never a large commune. We were never, you know, 100 people. We were at the most nine or 12, I think. And we built another house, to two bedrooms, and we had a, a truck box that we turned into a bedroom. And for years, one of the things about the commune in terms of fighting monogamy was every night we would have a discussion as to who was going to sleep where with whom. Because we could change, we rotate, we didn't, we did not have a bedroom of our own. Really? We did not have space of our own. It was, everything was common. You have the, uh, uh, how, how people are supposed to sleep every night. Um, you're kind of figuring it out, but you still might need an a, economy. <laughs> yes, an economy. Right. So how do you create that economy? So in the beginning, those of us who had skills and the skills were various would actually leave the commune and go to Berkeley where we had an associated commune uh, or go to elsewhere. And like I would go down and I spent four months building a house in Marin as a carpenter. Even though my pay, because I was a carpenter, was higher than other people could get, other people did what they did. They re they sent their money back to the commune, and we distributed it. And that's what sustained us for the first three years. It was not ideal, but at that point we had we didn't have a concept as to what the ideal solution so how did you become introduced to the concept of growing well the concept was we were hippies and we smoked pot <laughs> you know and so and we were growing our own lettuce of course so and tomatoes so, so we were gonna, lettuce, you can grow yeah, lettuce and tomatoes how much you know, how much so harder is pot it turned out that pot was fairly easy to grow and one of the things that we were when, when it became commercial that we were fighting against was the fact that homegrown had a terrible reputation. It was like, it was mostly considered bunk. It's interesting because several people have experienced this I've talked to, and that is that the whole concept of selling marijuana was a difficult one. Marijuana was a sacred herb. You gave it away. You shared it with people freely. How can we sell this thing? And so, but it turns out that I, I think probably we were, we were offered money for it rather than ask money for it. So what do you remember like the first time you really sold? In, in 73, we sold probably a pound or two by the ounce to friends. And that kind of opened our eyes. Yeah, what did that feel like? And like, it what was felt the like, well, finally, after getting over that this is a sacred herb and we can get money, it felt like, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we're hmm. on to something here. And at that point, everybody was going, hmm. So after realizing that you could make some money from just growing on your land, how did you begin to scale up that operation and think about it more as like, okay, this, is, this, this could be bigger than just a pound or two yeah, yeah. to gear. Yeah. Well, as I said, this kind of, we all kind of came to these realizations um, at the same time. And I guess part of what I need to um, fill in here is that the group that got together on the piece of land that I originally had 
was looking for land and we looked all over Northern California, we ended up buying a piece of land within sight of where we were across, across the canyon. So we were on this piece of land and we had sold our first lids to friends and realized that we were going to do more and started to scope out places to do it because you couldn't just do this it. wasn't this was like illegal yep absolutely absolutely uh-huh. illegal. and but the the fact of the matter was we were isolated the, when we started out the when our first commercial crop was either 73 or 74 i can't remember which commercial in the sense that we grew it to sell it rather than grew it to give it away and maybe get some money for it um, and at that point since amia had not yet been discovered and so this was seeded pot and we were getting 300 a pound for it but 300 a pound that was <laughs> incredible that was big money for us. Um, and there was no personal money that came out of that. That all went to, we paid off the land or we, we made a big chunk. We didn't pay it off that year. Then the next year, I can't give you a pound figure, but um, in 1975, what happened was we grew a small garden of four plants. They all turned out to be female and there were no males around and they, they didn't pollinate and they kept growing and they kept growing and growing and we kept wondering when it was time to harvest us. And a friend of ours came by and said, mm, you've got something called Cincinnia there. Um, and if you harvest it, I'll show you how to prepare it and I'll give you $800 a pound for it. And I said to myself, I want to be able to tell my grandchildren that I sold a pound of vegetative matter for $800. <laughs> okay. Imagine living off just a couple thousand dollars a year. And then all of a sudden, someone comes up to you and offers you $800 for a single pound of weed. Imagine the ecstasy of knowing that for once, not all the money has to go into paying off the land, that you might even have enough to build personal savings. That was the reality Douglas found himself in as weed began to spread beyond the hippie commune. But as the flow of capital rose, so did issues of redistribution. After all, communal living was all about sharing what you have with your neighbors. That much can be agreed upon. The real question is, how much do you share and how much do you keep for yourself? In 1976, that was the year where everything changed because the money started really flowing in. For many years, we clung to our communalism and our communism. Communism in the sense that we worked outside, we put the money into the pot and kept very little personal money. And what we did was we had a hierarchy of priorities. The first priority was to pay off the land. The second priority was to service the land, taxes and any of the kinds of road maintenance. We had four miles of dirt road, which we shared with others, but we were responsible for maintaining. Um, And it was not high standard road. Then there were things, then there was a category called extraordinary. And extraordinary was the things that we had decided to do for that year, buy a new rototiller, fence the, the lower garden, refence the lower garden, etc. And so we would budget for that and take it out and actually put it in envelopes as the money came in. And this was cash. After the land was paid, no, the first thing we did was make sure we had enough stash. That was the first thing before we even got the land payment together. So stash as in smoke for ourselves. And we distributed, we, we allocated a half a pound per person per year of finished bud. Then we went down that list of hierarchies. So, <laughs> I so, love that priority list. Everything, 
food is below everything else, we got to have the stash at the Stash at the top. Land payments, extraordinary. Then food. <laughs> <laughs> and food is like an envelope of for each person per month. And after those things were distributed, then if there was remainder, and as life went on, there became remainder, then it became a personal distribution. What was happening in individual pot farms was one thing, and what was happening in the community was another. The primary model of the pot farmer was the mom and pop pot farm. And we were an exception in that we were a communal pot farm. But what that influx of economic abundance did in our community was it began the establishment of community institutions based on our community needs, health, education, communications. I immediately got inducted into a political life here, even though that was not my intention. I mentioned that when I chose to move here, it was a choice between becoming an armed revolutionary against the United States of America or dropping out. Well, I got to the place that I was to share this land, 30 feet of where I was planning and building a house was a 400-acre parcel of land managed by the Bureau of Land Management, U.S. government. And they were in the process of exchanging that land with the timber company to consolidate their holdings in Point Reyes National Seashore. Which would mean that basically that timber company would destroy the yes, nature there. right there. So I rose to the occasion. I was, you know, a trained organizer. I organized my community against this. And I'm proud to say that 400 acres of old growth is still old growth. Nicholas's story illustrates that people who share similar values bond more easily and collaborate more efficiently, not just in building infrastructure, but also in defending their community. Organizing against a major logging company is no small feat, but Douglas had a few factors to his advantage. For one, this wasn't his first time standing up to authority. He'd succeeded in the past against the military draft, and he was confident he could do it again. For another, he wasn't alone. He had his commune. And he had support from organizations like the Sierra Club. Douglas's knack for inspiring people, even when the odds seem rigged against them, made him a force to be reckoned with. His passion and his natural readership reminds me of a quote by Alexander the Great. I'm not afraid of an army of lions led by sheep. I'm afraid of an army of sheep led by a lion. If there's one lesson we could draw from Douglas's story, it's this. Never underestimate what communal strength can accomplish. We, as a commune, I mean, we had an explicit limitation on how much we grew. And that explicit limitation was we chose not to hire anybody. So what we grew was what we could handle. Other people didn't have that limitation. They felt no compunction about hiring people. And it was very explicit. It was how to monitor our own greed. You know, okay, so if we don't bring more people in, then we are limited to what we can do. And that's the limit of what we'll do. And that's fine. People were not coming here in 78 to grow marijuana. That didn't happen until the early 80s. Um, and then that changed things. And when, when people came here to buy land specifically to grow marijuana, that changed the nature of the community. I mean, it was probably a lower middle class income for each of us. It wasn't, we, we weren't getting rich. Yeah, you weren't getting rich, but you were, sur you were surviving Definitely. and we living off the land. Definitely, we were doing things yeah. that, you know, I was 
that w- that's another aspect of that was that by that time people were earning enough money that they could start to turn their lives into something other than this scrapping dirt poor existence so if you were evolving slowly but comfortably into making more money you weren't necessarily trying to outsource anything you were trying to keep it you know the operation manageable what was the purpose of the trip to Asia and finding seed there. It was reputed that these Asian plants were stronger than the sativa that we were growing. I smoked my first indica when I was hitchhiking out to the Yolobuli Mountains to backpack for a week. And a guy picked me up and it was dead August and it was a hundred and some degrees and he wasn't wearing a shirt. Every time he turned, this way, I could see the marijuana leaf tattooed under his arm. And I, at one point, said, you smoke that stuff that's tattooed under your arm? And he said, reached under the seat of his car, and he pulled out a baggie, and he opened it up, and the cab filled with a smell that I had never smelled before. It smelled like skunk. I smoke it, and I'm immediately couch-locked, you know, because it's, like, stronger than anything I've ever had. What's this? And he says, a friend of mine just brought these seeds in from him. Afghanistan. And I said, hmm. And so I went off and backpacked into the Yolo Bullies for a week and came out and kind of couldn't get that out of my mind. So that fall, a friend of mine came to me because he knew I was a traveler. And he said, I want to go to Afghanistan and get some of those seeds because I've got to make some money. And I said, you're crazy. How are you going to go and get product which they don't even Advertise, advertise yeah. you know, they're, they're hash sellers. How are you going to figure that out? He said, well, I want you to help me. And I said, <laughs> go away. <laughs> but I couldn't get it out of my, my mind. And he came back about a week later and he said, well, and I said, mm, I think I'm going to Asia. And he said, what? You dirty double crosser. He said, well, with you. <laughs> we went up and down and in and out, spent hours talking about how we were going to do this. I booked tickets to Kabul and we realized we were out of our league. And so we went to an attorney friend of ours who did a lot of marijuana defense and we told him our problem. He said, oh, and that's the person to introduce you to. So he introduced us to one of his clients who had dealt hash out of that region. And the guy said, well, here's the deal. If you pay my and my wife's expenses, because she's never gone on one of these trips with me, I will take you there. And he had a family that he knew. And he takes us from the airport about 10 miles to a village. So we go into this compound where we don't leave for two weeks because they don't want us to. This is a family that's been smuggling for generations. So we told them what we wanted and they were a bit bemused by that. But they decided, you know, it was worth doing. And so they sent the runner out and it took about 10 days for him to, to score. So the seeds came and we had a series of people back in the States to take delivery of packages from overseas, knowing full well what was going to be in them. And we spent several days packaging the material in an incredibly obscure way. The 
the reason that he took us into town was we needed to buy various Afghani artifacts to take apart. And each seed was individually sewn into a baffle. And then they were put back in the material so that they were cushioned so that you couldn't feel them. I mean, we had almost a kilo of seeds. So you send all the stuff back. And how does this Afghan seed change how you operate in Humboldt? It changed everything. <laughs> there were basically five different kinds of seed that came back, and we were really, really anxious to see what it turned out. We were looking for early varieties, varieties that were harvestable in September and early October rather than October and November. So the first seeds that were mature matured in the end of August. And we've been watching these and they weren't big plants. They, they were purple from the very beginning, which was real novelty at that point and obviously had a marketing advantage as well. And so we harvested them and hung them. And I think we harvested the first one on the 27th of August, unheard of. Dried them up, rolled them up, smoked them up and got nothing. Nothing as in? No, no high, no head. You had gone all the way to Afghanistan, gone under house arrest for basically two weeks, smuggled it back in kilo of seed by sewing it into various Afghan fabric. Come home, you take the time to plant it, and then you smoke the whole it. Season. The you whole know, season. The whole season. whole season. Five months. And it's of, nothing. As I said, there were five different kinds of seed. This was the first one that came in. And I'm sitting here. I have distributed seed from Roseburg, Oregon, down to San Luis Obispo for money. Sold them. And so I'm going, oh, my God. Well, it turns out that the other four varieties were kick-ass. <laughs> <laughs> also were early, but not as early. We shit-canned all those seeds because we could identify them because we knew what they looked like. They looked differently. And we shit-canned the plants. Well, we sold a pound to someone who wanted to prove to one of his dealers that looks wasn't everything and that cosmetics was not the end-all. Turns out that in all probability, we got rid of, of a very high CBD plant. Ah, interesting. Gone. CBD was not something you were optimizing for. Nobody had any idea. Maybe some researchers in some reaches of Israel or somewhere that were doing some research on it knew about it. But we certainly did not. The first seed that was able to be harvested came out of bust, but then all the other ones were amazing. So that, I imagine is like fuel to your operation, right? It changed everything for everybody because first of all, they were getting an earlier harvest. They were avoiding the uh, slings and arrows of bad weather and they were getting a strong product that was immediately sucked up by the market. The market saw this as a, as a great step forward. What happened was that seed got around and that seed has influenced the genetics which we have these crazy names today. It's wild to think that the forefathers of some of the most popular strains of marijuana today with names like Gandalf OG or Slap and Tickle made their way to America through the Postal Service. As exhilarating as sneaking way to a faraway land and smuggling thousands of seed back to the U.S. sounded, ultimately, it was just a response to the forces of supply and demand. The demand arose from consumers who wanted a stronger hit, and the supply came from growers like Douglas who voyaged across the world to find exotic new strains. 
This market shift reflected a slow but steadily growing acceptance of marijuana from the 60s to the 70s. In 1969, only 4% of Americans claimed to have tried marijuana. By 1972, only three years later, that figure had climbed to 12%. Booms in the market like this are always followed by both positive and negative consequences. Positive in that it increased growers' access to financial resources, sustaining communes and small farms like Douglas's, but negative in that it drew government scrutiny. As public concern over the addictive nature of weed skyrocketed, the war on drugs was officially declared. The thing that, that happened was that people started attracting more attention of law enforcement, and some people invited it in a way because they were being too bold in terms of where they were growing and how they were growing. And they weren't. Do you remember having any conversations with people in your community about like, Hey man, you're like, you're well, attract some that happened here. a lot in a lot of different communities. And it actually caused uh, significant rifts in communities. In my community, it did not happen until the early eighties when people started to buy land for the specific and express purpose of growing marijuana. And those people who came in had no connection with the community. They had no restraints and they were not easily influenced. The campaign against marijuana planting was originally organized as an experiment program in the fall of 1983. And it happened not far from where I was living. I heard the helicopters all day that day. I thought they were looking for a lost hunter because I did not conceive of that being attack against marijuana cultivation. But that attack in, 19, in the fall of 1983, it was two days, yielded to 1984, in which it was an onslaught, where four days a week, there were helicopters in the sky, often two at a time, going over Pacific area, with surveilling with armed people with, and sometimes the helicopter base had machine guns in them, but people with armed, automatic weapons, uh, blackened faces, mostly drug enforcement agents from the urban areas who were looking for a fight. And they ravaged this place for 15 years, every summer for four months, four days a month. So this community did something which is novel and unique. The only thing that I can liken this to is the evolution of the Black Panthers, where a group of community people arose to defend their community. What happened was a bunch of people engaged in felonious activity, that is the growing and processing of marijuana for sale, got together and confronted law enforcement. And there were two groups that were established. One was the Citizens Liberties Monitoring Project, and the other was the Citizens Observation Group which trained people in the techniques of nonviolent training to go and witness and record the activities of law enforcement. Because law enforcement was running totally unsupervised. They were coming in, they were causing horses to break legs because their helicopters were coming down onto properties. They were cutting up water lines, which serve households and also serve for fire protection. They were cutting them up into one foot sections. They were tossing houses, which means coming into a house and just trashing, looking for evidence. They were shooting dogs. They were just out of control. And so the citizens observation group went out with video cameras and observed them and took reports from people who had been subjected to these behaviors and filed a lawsuit against the federal government. 
and the State Department of Justice, which was successful. And we were not unprepared for this kind of stuff. We were a, a community that had nonviolence trainers amongst us who could train people in nonviolent action to resist, and I was one of them. We were set up to do this, but it was very unique. There are very few places in history that you can find where people engaged in felonious activities are standing up to the law enforcement. It was illegal here, right? Like, absolutely it, it illegal. Was absolutely illegal. The government knows, and they're trying to actively suppress it, but can't. Well, they can. The thing that the lawsuit gained, one was helicopters had to be 500 feet above a property, above a curtilage. There would be no warrantless searches, that they could not destroy property, that there was a whole list of conditions that law enforcement had to follow to do this. It wasn't that we kept them away. We just made them constitutional as opposed to unconstitutional. When it became clear that this was going to become an area where people were coming to grow pot and the violence quotient went up and the attractiveness to nefarious characters from out of the area increased, a lot of the more gentle people left because they didn't want to raise their kids under the blade of helicopters. They didn't want to raise their kids under the threat of house invasion. Uh, they wanted a normal lifestyle. So they sold their land often to people who were here for the specific purpose. The war on drugs during the Rega era hit Humboldt hard. What Douglas describes here was actually a series of drug raids in 1990 known as Operation Greensweep. You're watching News Channel 3, the spirit of the North Coast. A large-scale marijuana growing operation is uprooted in Humboldt County. Good evening, I'm Christian Leinson. And I'm Preston Phillips. The Humboldt County Sheriff's Office seized what it's calling the largest marijuana bust in Humboldt County history. On Monday, over 100,000 marijuana plants close to worth, worth close to $500 million were eradicated from Green Diamond Timber Company property and United States Forest Service property. According to the Sheriff's Office, it was an elaborate setup that took days to eradicate. The military operation was carried out by 200 U.S. Army soldiers, National Guardsmen, and federal agents to eradicate marijuana growing in the region. Beyond their aggressive tactics, the government neglected the rights of Humboldt citizens by searching without warrants and seizing property without evidence. These violations of the Fourth Amendment shocked Douglas and his community into action. How could the government use military force against its own citizens without any consequences? As with his resistance to the military draft, Douglas's rebellious spirit eventually paid off. Through organized measures of anti-violent protest, the operation was halted by August 5th, after only one week. Still, the hum of helicopter blades and disruptive raids remained in Humboldt's memory. Growers moved away with their families. And soon, Douglas found himself alone on the commune once again. You eventually would meet your wife in 87, right? Yeah. So could you lead me up to your hiatus? So what took the commune down had nothing to do with law enforcement. And in fact, part of what I got off on was getting away with it. And every day that the helicopters didn't find you was another day that you were closer to harvest. And it was a numbers game. They claim at one point that they got 10% of the crop. I don't think they ever got 10% of the crop. 
and again, the safety in numbers, you know, and it was the people who stood out that they tended to hit. It was the people who were sloppy or lazy or didn't, you know, work hard enough to conceal their crops or whatever that got hit. And you asked earlier whether I was, we lost a couple gardens to theft. That was another big risk was thieves and thieves didn't operate under any rules and they were often armed and more dangerous than cops. So we lost a couple to thieves and we lost one small garden to cops that was incidental to another bus that they were doing, but but that was it over the time. And it was basically, as I say, it was a numbers game. And every day that you got closer to harvest was a good day. <laughs> and that's the way I did it. You know, it was like checking off the calendar almost. So what was making you want to maybe take a break from this? I didn't think this was going to be an enduring economic activity. I mean, you had the feds coming in from yeah. all sides, the DEA yeah. coming in from all sides. Well, that actually, I took I took a break before camp started. I saw it as a more limited future than it actually was for most people. And then what became of the commune was not the pressure of enforcement, but the fact that people, we lived 23 miles from town, four miles of dirt road. People were looking for other alternative ways of they were starting to dabble in becoming professionals of various sorts or something else. Either school, jobs, or love took them off of the land. And finally, it was, finally, I was the last person standing. <laughs> and that's when I went off with the person who became my wife and left the commune and left it to caretakers for a while. And when I finally walked away from marijuana cultivation, I thought, you know, I've devoted a lot of my life to this, etc., that I would miss it. Not at all. I still smoke pot regularly, daily. I usually grow a plant uh, or two to serve my own needs. And my friends are very generous and <laughs> love to share their, their best. So I have no problem with acquiring it. It is really an amazing thing to do. It's a, it's a plant like no other plant. You know, you start with a little seed and you end up in one season with a plant that can be 15 feet tall festooned with these gigantic buds full of psychoactive material. And it's like glistening, you know, it's like sun behind it. You know, it's like, it's this, it's this remarkable relationship with another living organism. Talk to any grower and their relationship with the plant is really significant in their lives. Early morning sun in Humboldt, morning dew evaporating from the dirt. A man in a plant is more than familiar with. One of the most remarkable things about Douglas's story is the tender relationship he shares with weed. To him, the plant isn't just a commodity or a chemical high, it's something more. Weed symbolizes his journey as an anti-conformist, someone who thrives on the fringe of society and is proud of it. In his youth, the plant represented rebellion against the cookie cutter middle-class values of his parents and grandparents. It opened the gate to an alternative lifestyle, one of experimentation and liberation from traditionalist restraints. Later, it stood for the community he'd nurtured and literally built with his own two hands. The cultivation of weed also reflected the intimate relationship he shared with nature. Perhaps this is why, despite years of scraping to get by and skirmishes with law enforcement, Douglas found himself returning to the growing field. The back at it part was very artisanal. The Myself and my wife grew very small 
amounts compared to other people at that time. You need to recall that in 1996, Proposition 215 passed. was our local medical marijuana initiative that was passed by county voters by in Arizona that was supposed to help crack down on marijuana dealers. Instead, some dealers are using it as a legal loophole, claiming now it's legal for them to sell their product. Which was a beauty. It was three paragraphs long, as opposed to the 55 pages of Prop 64, which ultimately legalized recreational with an incredible arcane amount of regulation and detail. Props 215 was like this. It said basically, if you have a legitimate medical need recognized by a doctor as a preferred alternative, you can grow, smoke, and whatever, marijuana. And that was that's the way I would have liked to have seen the Recreational Act. Basically, this plant is no longer illegal. That would have been my preference. But I was savvy enough to know that given the nature of weed and its inebriant qualities, that it was never going to happen that way because there was definitely going to be what's called a syntax put on it. And it wasn't going to go unregulated because of its value, blah, blah, blah. So I was, even though I knew what I wanted, I wasn't naive enough to think that I was going to get it. So you were doing it artisanally with your wife. We did under 60 plants and they all had names and, and not the fancy names. They were like Tom and Charlie, and, <laughs> and, although they were, they were females, but pot farmers are tinkerers. So there is no pure line of those seeds left. There was no pure line of those seeds after about two or three years because everybody had crossed and recrossed and uncrossed and etc. And because we did not do it scientifically, we didn't have control plots. We just experimented, <laughs> you know, and so there was never any consistency in the way that genetics was developed. Those genetics are still in the mix, but who knows how to parse it out at this point. I want to lead us up now to 2016, 2015, because you and your wife had differences of opinion of what regulation would mean the continuation of the industry? Well, regulation, the, the propositions which legalized marijuana were not written here in this community. They were written by interests who had significant commercial interest in the distribution and sales at a level that was not cultivation up. And we were kind of through the process of that initiative already penciled out and marginalized because we did not have our interests well represented in those processes. So I have no objection to the legalization of marijuana. I did not vote for Prop 64. I didn't vote. I didn't vote no either because I couldn't vote against legalization of marijuana, but I could not vote for this incredibly complex and overburdensome structure that they were putting in place. It would absolutely devastate a lot of homegrown operations just because of how many taxes were put on. Yes. And I, I saw that handwriting on the wall. And that's when my divorce happened <laughs> because I chose not to go forward and my wife decided to go forward with a legal permit. I, who had been involved in something called HUMMAP, the Humboldt Marijuana Advocacy Project, and I had been following the politics and the course of this legislation knew that it was going to be a nightmare of regulation. I chose not to participate. And by that time, I was 70 years old and ready to retire anyway. 
And so I do not want to go forward. And she did. And so we separated as a consequence. Other things too, but that was the, the catalyst. You would think that Douglas Fir, a commune founder who introduced some of the strongest marijuana strains to California, would be the first to cast his vote for a law that legalized weed. But that wasn't the case. As attractive as Prop 64 appeared on the surface, the numerous strings attached to the fine print discouraged small growers like Douglas. Unlike Prop 215, which stressed the right to grow weed for medical reasons, Prop 64 commercialized the weed industry and funneled huge chunks of profit into the government's hands. Years of navigating the weed market told Douglas that regulation would dramatically change grows in California. Where once the plant was treated with almost sacred reverence, now it was subsumed into a capitalist system that valued scale and profits over culture. Once just the mere thought of selling weed had felt irreverent, now all that the growers seemed to care about was just how much cash they could earn per pound. As the effects of the new policy solidified, a thought itched in the back of Douglas's mind. What would become of Humboldt County? I predicted, and this is just, you know, me being on my high horse, that both the fact that this is not agricultural land and the fact that the county was not making it easy was going to drive marijuana out of Humboldt County. And I am not so sure that I'm wrong about that. There, there may be a residual boutique, a uh, few handfuls of growers, but I don't think it's going to retain it. During July and August, when you see the number of water trucks coursing the road that we were just on, you wonder, this is not competitive. If you've got to pay to haul water and someone in the Central Valley or San Diego or Santa Barbara County can use irrigation water on flat soil with good arability and you don't have to buy soil. I've got a little sticker on one of my file cabinets there that says real farmers don't buy dirt. And, you know, farmers around here buy dirt. It's not, it's not even soil. It's materials. It's a collection of materials. But I do think that there is a path for what has happened with organic agriculture. So like you have companies like Monsanto that are doing agriculture at scale, right? But then you still have your mom and pop tomato farmers and people will pay top dollar because there is a desire to be connected to the farmer, to the land and move away from these full scale operations. I could be wrong, but I do see a future for Humboldt in that. Well, I hope you're right. I would say that there will always be people who look for that, whether there are enough of them to sustain uh, industry in Humboldt County and other places who are doing the same thing, because Humboldt isn't the only place uh, that is doing it in that kind of spirit and practice. The other thing that's working against Humboldt County is the county itself and the, the regulations and the moving target and the, the shifting sands of that. Humboldt County has not been an easy county to deal with as a grower in this new, brave new world. It isn't only the market forces that are affecting the shift, it's the bureaucratic forces that are affecting the shift. And this county historically has seen booms and busts based on the fact that we're a resource area gold, timber, weed, their land base, and uh, we've seen the downsides and the upsides of all of them. So I hope this can stabilize. I'm personally glad that I'm not in the running anymore, and it's not my issue in that sense, but I'm looking at it still, and I still have questions about it. Mm -hmm. 
again, getting back to community, that most of the community institutions that we've created, the radio station, the health center, the community centers, the, the schools, the fire, the volunteer fire departments, the environmental organizations are still up and running, benefiting from the largesse and generosity of those marijuana growers who are still trying to hang in there. Like the community that they built is now turning against them. And then you've got people like Elaine, who is a second generation and, you know, has her family's hopes invested in this process. And, you know, I'm hopeful for them. I see you're using the word organic. What's being used now is regenerative because they've taken yet another step. And I, I really applaud and value the cultivation and the agricultural science that they're applying to these issues in a good way, uh, not in a Monsanto way, but in a much more empirically based than we we're doing. I appreciate that. I think that that's going to be an important contribution to not only marijuana cultivation, but other kinds of agriculture as well. And so I don't think we're out of the game yet, but I know it's changed. So the, the arc of it that I've seen has been a really interesting, it's been an interesting ride. Humboldt may be changing, but its spirit isn't lost. After all, how can you lose history? The county was tilled and sowed with the spirit of resistance. From Vietnam War draft protesters to anti-institutionalists to socialists, this community was built by those who went against the grain and found that they were not alone. They protected each other in times of danger, organizing peaceful protests against nuclear warfare and successfully uniting to halt Operation Greensweep. Prop 64 is only the latest challenge that Humboldt growers have faced. It's daunting. It has widespread effects. Yet, I have faith that neither time nor politics can erase the memory of Humboldt's communes. Interviewing Douglas in his drying rack and breathing in decades of history, it made me realize that as commercialized and mainstream as weed culture has become, it can never cut itself from its hippie roots. People like Douglas aren't relics of a forgotten era, but the pioneers of what is today a $5 billion industry in California. So the next time you roll a joint or chew a cannabis edible, don't just thank your distributor. Thank the nonconformists of the 60s and 70s. Thank Douglas. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lynn. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Irene Van Burkle, Matt Fernandez, Renee B. Cannon, Sophia Donner, David Saidi, Ashley Jimenez, Nicholas Guzman, Aaron Devereaux, Sanessa Gisley, and Lois Choi. Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong. With support from Sarah Hobson, Cherise Tan, Harushi Kanauchi, Kristen Hagelin, Aya Cortez and Valencia Lu. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Aiden Ashworth, Mickey McCalla, Sylvie Wong, and Eric Menna. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand with support from Tiffany Dang, Yao Lil, and Dina Gabriel. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.